This is an ABC podcast. If someone describes you as adolescent, there's a pretty good chance they're having a go at you, not taking you seriously. Unless, of course, technically you are an adolescent, age-wise I mean, in which case they're probably just being descriptive. Anyway, my point is that acting in an adolescent or childish manner is frowned upon by most in society. I'm sorry for being late. Welcome. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. 2022. Play is for children and work is for adults and never the twain shall meet. But our first two guests today challenge that particular view of the world. Not only is it out of date, they argue, but failing to appreciate a growing cultural embrace of childish sensibilities risks limiting future opportunities and innovation. It's an intriguing idea and first up to argue the case is Paul Howe from the University of New Brunswick in Canada. Now, we've heard from Paul previously on this topic. His central argument is that adolescence isn't so much a time of life as a state of mind, and it's transforming our adult world. What I mean by that is that uh, adults themselves, adult society has come to be kind of infused with a variety of adolescent qualities, things we would traditionally think of as quintessentially adolescent. So things like being relatively impulsive and brash, being disinhibited, Things like not necessarily being as fully committed and persevering with things, being more inclined to jump from one thing to the next, not having that sense of, I say, sort of commitment and duty to things like even things like voting, for example, having a sense of civic duty. Also things like the idea that, you know, a lot of people these days, really, they, they want to have fun in their lives. I mean, that maybe becomes sort of a principal focus for people. There's a lot of diversions, entertainment options, and that's what a lot of people want to do rather than maybe focusing a bit more on some of the, you know, the serious issues that confront us. So in a lot of ways, yeah, about the idea then people sometimes chafing against some of the restrictions that they feel are there and feeling like they don't have to follow them, they don't have to follow the rules. And you argue that this began with universal secondary education. How so? Briefly, I could say what I don't think it is, or at least I don't emphasize, is a lot of people would say it's about to do with our modern, fast-paced lives, that we live in this environment these days where the the economy forces us to be quick and nimble. Technology is all around us, giving us all sorts of distractions and so on, and these kinds of things. So I develop a very different argument and suggest that really the roots of this go far back in time. They do go back to the period when we introduced universal secondary education, which differs from country to country. I focus quite a bit on the United States. So in that case, we're talking about the early 20th century when this really began. And by about the 1930s or so, you had a good majority of young teenagers in in the United States attending secondary school. But the key part of the argument then, though, is that, that this really then transformed the socialization process for young people. That historically, a young person, after doing primary school, let's say, would have entered the adult world. They would have started working. They would have maybe on the farm, maybe in some other occupation, but they would have been exposed and interacting with adults on a consistent basis through their teenage years. Once we introduced universal secondary education, now young people through those teenage years were interacting with peers. And that was very different. So it led to a much heightened emphasis on peer influence in our lives in those teenage years. And the effects of this run deep. 
it's not just about, you know, wanting to wear the same clothes as your friends or these kind of more minor influences. Studies on the formation of personality and character suggest that these teenage years are very important in terms of the type of person we become and that peers can have a very strong influence on us in those years. Sometimes that influence is, is that we want to actually model ourselves after someone else, but sometimes it's just a much a matter of validation that the kind of person we are as a teenager is being validated by those around us who think this is a good way to be, to be more disinhibited, a bit brash, maybe a bit impulsive. And so the argument then becomes that these traits that were becoming more deeply imprinted in the teenage years started to be carried forward to adulthood. And that this was kind of a long social process that began before World War II through the inter-20s and 30s, and then continues on over time as people socialize in this way, you know, become part of adult society and start to have these transformative effects. And it accelerated in the 1960s. Yeah, the idea is that the effects sort of, yeah, start to accumulate. And, you know, part of the idea is then if you could identify sort of the first group of teenagers to have this experience, well, they would move forward to adulthood. And then, of course, they'd be subject to all the normal pressures of of the adult world and they would undergo a certain natural maturation process. So because of that, you know, it's not as if they arrive as fully formed teenagers in adulthood. Instead, you know, it's, it's a modest effect, let's say, with the first generation. But once those people become part of the adult world, that starts to change the adult world. It starts to change the way in which people, for example, start to parent their own children. They become more accommodating of their teenage ways of some of these traits that I've mentioned. And so with successive generations, the effects can become sort of stronger and stronger. I see the 1960s as sort of when this all sort of explodes a bit. Uh, And we do really see the strong emergence of a very clear youth culture where people are clearly, you know, taking their lead from their young uh, friends and and so forth. But I see there haven't been a longer gestation process for these things that happened as a result of a more pedestrian phenomenon, which was simply that young people started to go to high school with one another. And these kinds of traits started to take seed in the adult world. When did individualism, though, become central? to the idea of being an adolescent? Because what you're talking about, according to your theory, these people that we now know as teenagers, they became a cohort. They bonded together in a sense and and were sharing their time together. And that was important. When did we become I? Well, that transformation, I would say that the seeds of it were always there. I guess what I would say is we often think of individualism as this sort of ethos, this set of values that at some point people decided to embrace. And typically it's the 1960s that people point to when this individualistic ethos sort of swept over Western society, really, especially the younger people at that time. And it's reshaped our societies ever since. What I'm sort of arguing is that the seeds of that came earlier and that they came not so much in the form of a sweeping ethos, but really in terms of just everyday qualities, habits, behaviors that young people started to inculcate in one another. They started to express them more freely. And that then as it laid the groundwork for a more cultural or social change that we see when we talk about a new era and ethos of individualism sweeping over society. We've talked a lot about the downsides. Do you see benefits in in this development, as you said? 
Well, I do. There's really one very important benefit, which is the way in which when you have a more individualistic society and people believe in those ideas and principles, that also implies a more tolerant society, a more open society. You know, if I want to express myself, I want to be free to do the things I want to do. And if we extend that to everybody, then that implies that we're more open to those who are different from us, who want to live different kinds of lives or from different, you know, ethnic and cultural backgrounds and live differently. So this adolescent mindset, this adolescent spirit, which uh, I, I think that's been the principal contribution, the benefit has been the way in which it's helped us to become a more tolerant and open society, at least in terms of underlying public values and attitudes. Do the downsides, though, do they outweigh that benefit, particularly in an era where we're facing enormous challenges to our politics, to our environment, to just society in general? Yeah, I think that's we have to ask those questions now. I mean, it does mean that we're not as able to come together as a, as a society, as communities in order to address difficult problems. And obviously, right now, we're looking at one of the most pressing problems, climate change, and, and not, you know, we're not going far enough to try to tackle these things. And I think part of the problem is, yeah, that the citizenry is not necessarily willing to make the kinds of sacrifices and that would be necessary in order to do that. And then I also would see a range of sort of impulsive, individualistic behavior in the support for people like Donald Trump in terms of politics, that there were some of these kind of almost adolescent qualities coming forward in those who would support him. So on balance, hard to say, really. I think we we have a lot of problems to address. I think they're difficult to address given some of the underlying traits I've described. But at the same time, you know, the fact that we've become more open and tolerant is a pretty major benefit over the last century. I think you can find examples of the kidification, as it were, of adult culture everywhere once you start looking for them. Guest number two, Matt Alt, a Tokyo-based writer, author of Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World, and also a recent essay for the website E.ON, entitled The Great Regression. You know, people are online, they're using emoji and kids speak like adulting or besties. More adults read young adult novels than the tweens and teens whom they were ostensibly written. In Hollywood, you don't really see much in the way of adult dramas. You don't see in the much of the, in the way of sex scenes. Instead, you're seeing heroes based on cartoon characters and, and toy franchises. You have hyper fans who are known as stands, whose lives revolve around their favorite celebrities. And these people have roiled social media. They've transformed the music industry and even U.S. politics. The investment world has similarly been rocked by uh, childish behaviors with things like meme stocks and NFTs of cartoon apes. And then in the fashion world, you have Kidcore, which is a retro aesthetic that's inspired by children's clothing, and it's making huge inroads on fashion runways. I think also, tellingly, the most searched term on the American website Pornhub in 2021 was hentai, which is a word for erotic cartoons. So you're seeing all sorts of manifestations of these sort of childish sensibilities in adult culture. And I, I think once you start looking for them, they're actually tough to ignore. You argue, don't you, that to understand this phenomenon fully, that you have to look back to Japan and to the 1990s. What was so important about that country in that time? 
Yeah, Japan is a never-ending source of fascination for me. I've, I've, I live here, I've written extensively on it. And one of the really fascinating aspects of Japan is that Japan sort of experienced modernity a little ahead of the rest of the world in many ways. And that's particularly the case when it comes to things like experiencing a great economic crash and the way that its citizens deal with that. Japan was flying high in the 70s and 1980s. It was experiencing what was known as its bubble economy. And this was a time of great trade friction between Japan and the West. Japan was this sort of incandescent economic tiger of the Far East. And it was kind of understood, certainly when I was growing up in the 80s, that our our corporate overlords would all be Japanese when we grew up. But it didn't play out that way. Japan experienced this great, great financial crash that ushered in two decades of economic stagnation. And the way that its young people grappled with that stagnation, with their dreams having kind of had their wings clipped, was a precursor of things that we're seeing all over the world right now. And regression is a big part of that. And regression in what form in Japan in the 1990s? What did we start to see? Well, up until the 1990s, I think it was really expected that young people would graduate from college, settle down, start families, launch careers, and become grown-ups. But in the midst of this economic recession that was happening in Japan, it became much more difficult for young people to land jobs, to start careers, to launch families. As a result, they started to embrace what were seen as very juvenile behaviors. Grown-ups refusing to graduate from watching cartoon shows or reading comic books. You saw the rise of large adult fandoms. You saw the rise of young people prioritizing themselves over their futures in many ways. And a lot of the things that we now associate with social media were actually pioneered on the streets of Japan by young women in particular, who were using new technologies to communicate with each other. Was that change, was that really a protest or was it more a a sign of strain? I think it was definitely a sign of strain. I don't think young people set out to upset the apple cart, as it were. They weren't setting out to kind of give a middle finger to adult society. They wanted in on it. They wanted careers. They wanted to start families. But because of the way things were playing out in Japan's lost decades, as they're known by economists now, they couldn't. So instead, they turned inward. And by turning inward, they embraced things that were nostalgic. They embraced things that were fun. And they they started to consume and live in ways that were quite different from grown-ups of previous generations. And this caused a great deal of distress in Japan among authority figures who saw their country's young people as basically swirling around the drain, that they wouldn't amount to anything when they came of age. And uh, as it turned out, that actually wasn't the case. And those concerns are exactly the concerns that are expressed today in the West by many uh, politicians and public figures. Absolutely. I mean, the idea of telling young people to act their age or to grow up or stop being a baby, I mean, that's as old as time itself. But when you see situations in the West, such as millennials being dumped on for not drinking as much as they should, not buying cars as much as they should, not dating as much as they should, it takes on a much sharper sort of uh, societal critique. And I think that if you actually sit down and ask these young people and some not so young people who are engaging in juvenile behaviors why they do it, it's because they don't have any other way to live. They don't, the the traditional avenues of expressing yourself as an adult, the careers, the houses, the starting of families, they're not nearly as attainable for current generations as they were in the past. And because of that, you know, you see what you might call a passive rebellion. 
you know, why grow up? Why have all of these affectations of adulthood if you're denied the actual rewards of adulthood? And I think that's what's going on, not only in Japan, but Japan in the 90s and the West now. And an interesting point that you make is that mainstream progressives are just as likely to fret over that as their conservative rivals, aren't they? Well, you know, when you think about it, just in regular speech, telling someone to grow up or stop acting like a baby, I mean, that still maintains its sting. So we have a sort of innate resistance, I think, as grown-ups, as adults, to what we perceive as behavior that is, quote-unquote, beneath us, that is something that we should have grown out of. And I think that can be troubling to people on all sides of the political spectrum. Progressives tend to frame it, I think, mainly in terms of fueling the rise of Trumpism, particularly in the United States, of populism, of that sort of political behavior. But in fact, I think that you can see manifestations of childish sensibilities on the progressive side of things that are arguably nourishing, that are arguably uh, restorative and helpful. So it's, I think, counterproductive to categorize all manifestations of kiddie-like behavior among adults as being unalloyed negatives. Because, I mean, when you think about it, when we're down, it's often the case that people, even who don't think of themselves as juvenile, will turn to nostalgic pleasures, whether it be a fondly remembered book or a fondly remembered movie, or even simply, you know, recalling how things were back in when you were younger. That is a very normal and, and healthy sort of behavior. Now, in modern society, fueled by the internet and people being able to find their tribe, so to speak, you're seeing people engaging in behaviors en masse that are becoming actual subcultures and actually changing the way people consume and live their lives. That is kind of shocking to some people, I think, but it's not necessarily a bad thing that people are reading young adult novels, that they're watching superhero movies, that they're playing with Legos. I mean, life is hard. However, you have to get through it in a way that's not harming anyone else, I think, is good. I think the traditional criticisms of juvenile behavior in people who have supposedly outgrown them is that acting that way doesn't prepare you for the real world. It doesn't prepare you for life as an adult. But in fact, as Japan showed in the late 1990s, a lot of behaviors that were seen as negative, as were seen bad by the authorities and powers that be, turned into surprising sources of energy and power for Japan as a whole later on. Let me give you some concrete examples of this. In the 1990s, Japanese women in particular were criticized for embracing Hello Kitty, super cute characters, acting cute, talking cute, and hyper-focusing on texting each other, on taking pictures with one another, on partying instead of settling down and starting families. Well, a lot of the technologies that young women embraced in Japan in the 1990s turned out to be the very foundations of what we now know as social media. It was young women who pioneered the use of emoji in texting. Actually, it's young women in Japan who pioneered mobile texting using pocket pagers as sort of makeshift texting devices, and then later enthusiastically adopting early cell phones and early mobile internet programs way before they came out in the West. 
So now Japanese exports of anime and comic books and all of the associated merchandise have turned into one of its major export programs in modern years. So it's kind of ironic that the same consumption patterns that adults were roundly criticized for in the 1990s have become a major source of revenue for Japan now in the 2020s. And where does the behavior of Donald Trump and and his zealous supporters, where does that fit into this? Because obviously when you look there, one of the accusations is that they don't behave like adults, that they're not mature. They would be seen by many as not being a positive side of this phenomenon. I think a lot of critics who frame the embrace of childish sensibilities as a moral failing and lump all of it together, they miss the fact that there's actually a nourishing form of regression that harnesses playfulness And there's a destructive form that manifests as a sort of blind rage. Both of those forms of regression are fueled by a certain disappointment with society. They're fueled by people who want something different. One wants something new and delights in transgressing boundaries through play. But the other is more interested in reverting to an early form and polices boundaries through hate and violence. So, and there's also a big question about what's the cause and effect here? Do childish sensibilities really lead to an erosion of reality? Or is actually this regressive behavior a kind of acknowledgement that our futures are not as rosy as they used to be? You know, after years of economic and social and political chaos, there there really doesn't seem to be much of a light at the end of the tunnel anymore. Who can blame people for embracing their nostalgic childhood pleasures? Adults playing with Lego, adults embracing fandoms, adults expressing themselves in ways that were traditionally associated with children. It might well result in absolutely new tools that we can use to navigate this sort of late capitalist post-industrial society that we're all experiencing for the first time right now. Well, Matt Alt, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. And now to Oxford University philosopher William McCaskill and a question about our responsibility to the unborn, to those who will one day inherit all that we leave behind. In a new book entitled What We Owe the Future, Associate Professor McCaskill makes the case for what he calls long-termism. And he defines the idea by employing three key concepts. The first is the need to understand that future people, future generations, Well, they aren't just an abstract thought. They will one day be real. And they actually matter. William McCaskill. So the idea here is that people have moral status and we should be concerned about their interests no matter where they are in time. So just as we should care about whether we harm someone on the other side of the planet, we should also care about someone if we harm them in decades' time or centuries' time. And I think this is actually a pretty common sense moral position. So if you imagine, for example, that you're hiking on a trail and you drop some glass and you think, oh, maybe someone will walk by and cut themselves in that glass. So I should clean up after myself. It doesn't really matter whether someone who cut themselves would do so in a day's time or a year's time or even a century's time. Harm is harm. And that's true whenever that occurs. The second key concept is understanding that there will probably be a lot of humans still to come, that... In one sense, we're really just at the beginning of the human story. That's exactly right. So you might think, oh, we're certainly coming to our end. You know, the human race has been around for about 300,000 years. 
And I think it is true that there are major risks that imperil our future and mean that human civilization could come to an end in the next century or next few centuries. But if we manage to navigate this time of perils, then the human story could be very long indeed, where a typical mammal species lasts about a million years. That would give us 700,000 years still to come. And if we manage to last beyond that, well, the Earth will remain habitable for hundreds of millions of years. The stars will keep shining for billions of years to come. That means that if we manage to avoid kind of early, you know, near-term extinction or the end of civilization, then, yeah, there could be an enormous future story ahead of us. And the third concept that you suggest is that there are things that we can do today that can help improve the situation for future generations. Just explain that to us. So there are two categories of things that can be enormously positive, and not just for the present generation. So they have huge benefits for those of us alive today, but also very long-run positive impacts too. And so the first is reducing the risk of an all-out major global catastrophe, where the risks that I'm particularly worried about are risks of new pandemics. Future pandemics could be far, far worse than COVID-19 again, especially given advances in biotechnology that allow us to make viruses that are even more destructive than viruses that one finds in nature. The second risk of global catastrophe is from nuclear war, which is sadly all too salient at the moment, where again, this could lead to hundreds of millions or even billions dead, could lead to civilizational collapse that we don't come back from. The second category of ways we can make the future better are what I call trajectory changes, which are ways of ensuring that even in those worlds where civilization lasts a long time, it goes better rather than worse. And so we can affect trajectory changes by improving society's values. So continuing to campaign to give greater concern for all sentient creatures, not just our in-group. And then secondly, by carefully navigating development of new technologies that could reshape the distribution of power in the world. And I tend to focus in particular on advanced artificial intelligence, which it seems to me will be one of, if not the most important technologies in the next 10, 20 years. In deciding how we should deal with the problems of the future, you talk about the importance of, quote, significance, persistence, and contingency. Could I get you to unpack that for us? Like I say, long-termism is about thinking, what are the events in our lifetime that will have negative impacts, not just for us in the present, but also into the long term? And I use this framework to try and help us prioritize among different events or issues that we could be facing. So the significance of an event or state of affairs is how big a difference at any one time it makes to the value of the world. So, you know, the world having the next generation of iPhone, maybe that makes the world slightly better, but it's like a very small thing. In contrast, the abolition of slavery made an enormous positive difference to how good the world was. The second is persistence, where for most things, they don't last forever. Empires kind of rise and fall. Technologies, they come into existence, then become made obsolete. Whereas some things last indefinitely long. So the extinction of a species is indefinitely long. So just as we should care about things that are more significant, we should also care about things that are more persistent, that last longer too. And then the final aspect is contingency. And by that, I mean like non-inevitability, where if something is simply going to happen anyway, then even if it's very significant, even if it's very persistent, it's still not worth, you know, it's not as important to push on that thing. So a lot of technology, for example, can be enormously important for the world. But if you try and invent the technology well, perhaps more likely than not, someone else would have developed it a few years later. 
And so that's the category of things that as long-termists we should be particularly looking for, things that make a big difference to the value of the world, that will last a very long time, and that yet wouldn't have happened otherwise. And I suggest that the risks of global catastrophe and improving the values that guide the future, these are the things that are kind of particularly prominent on this framework. And what should we then be uh, willing to sacrifice for future generations? How do we determine that? Yeah, it's a great question. And in my mind, it's an open question. You know, how much should we sacrifice? Is that 1%? Is that 10%? Is that 50% of kind of global resources? I don't know, honestly. What I do know, however, is that it's much more that we should be doing than we are currently doing. So let's just suppose as a bar that rich countries aim for spending 1% of their resources and 1% of their political attention on issues that particularly impact the long-term future. That seems like a pretty low bar. That seems pretty moderate. But yet implementing that would be absolutely revolutionary. It would be transformative in terms of improving humanity's prospects. And honestly, for a lot of the things that we could be doing, like trying to prevent the next world war or trying to prevent the next pandemic, I actually think it would be a net positive for us in the present too. Because in my view, the risk of us dying in a catastrophe like a pandemic or a nuclear war, that's about the same as the risk of us dying in a car crash. And well, we invest an awful lot in car safety and for good reason. And I think we should be doing the same for these global catastrophes too. William McCaskill, an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Oxford University, and his book is called What We Owe the Future. Our other guests today were Tokyo-based writer Matt Alt and political scientist Paul Howe from the University of New Brunswick. Further details are available on the Future Tense website. My co-creator and co-producer is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.